Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Frank Ordaz, Matt Painter for Return of the Jedi, as well as for movies like Temple of Doom, E.T., Star Trek's 2 through 4, and many more. An incredibly talented painter, Mr. Ordaz is such a fascinating conversationalist and brings to life a lot of the behind-the-scenes stories from the making of Return of the Jedi and beyond. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 126, Frank Ordaz. Let's start at the beginning uh, with your inspirations and you growing up. What made you even want to become an artist? What was that first impetus for you? I grew up in East L.A. back in the late 50s, early 60s. Very poor family, working class. You know, my dad was a boxer. So usually an entry into making a career is either you're going to do it with your fists or do it with your hands. Because I'm not the smartest, sharpest pencil in the bunch. So I, I just start drawing all the time. I got encouraged by my parents. And what's interesting is I've talked to a lot of people who teach art and have not used art as career. And one thing that stands out is they were always admonished by their parents that you need to have a business degree or something to fall back on if the art thing doesn't work, right? Well, maybe it was uh, naivete. Maybe it was my parents believed in the American dream, but they always, I never got a negative feedback at all that I couldn't be an artist by my parents. I'm serious. Never once. They always said, you know, God gave me a gift and I would make, I would, you know, you're going to do it. And so I've never had a negative thought about having a career as an artist. And subsequently, since I've, since the age of 21, I've made a living as an artist, you know, raised a family, you know, purchased homes and made a living at it, still making a living at it, you know, you know, I'm here at my gallery in Auburn, California, and I've been here God, close to 12 years now. And I kind of planned my life actually kind of in three sets. I wanted to work on Star Wars. I don't know why, but everybody when I was in college wanted that gig because it just seemed like such a fun thing to do, right? Especially after they came out with the with the books, you know, the making art of Star Wars. So it's like, man, if I, you know, if I get on the movie, I'll, you know, I'll have my, you know, you're talking about the mind of a 21-year-old, right? I'll have my picture in books and uh, I'll be famous and that sort of, I mean, that's the mindset of a 21 year old. I was all in for that, but I worked it out in my mind that, you know, I'd worked on Star Wars, then I'd be an illustrator doing movie posters. Back then artists did movie posters, not anymore. A lot of it's digital, but you actually painted these things and worked on books. And then I wanted to have a fine art career because I was mentored by two fine artists and both of the men, you know, were born in the late 1800s. So, you know, they filled my mind or my, my, my imagination with the idea that there was this amazing life you could have as an artist, just literally painting and people buying your paintings. And there's this sense of freedom. And I, I've been always attracted to be my own boss and freedom. That's a big deal for me. So I've never had an employee complex. Even when, I, even when I was at Lucasfilm, it's like, you know, I'm not going to be here that long because I'm going to go do my thing. I want to be the George Lucas. I want to be the boss man. So that's just the way I'm wired. I mean, I, I know some of my friends who've been there since I was there. So we're talking 30 plus years, right? That's not my mindset. My mindset is chart my own course. So, um, so that, so the, so the beginnings was I've always, I was always painting and my dad was entering my, my artwork and shows. So he, my dad was probably my biggest supporter. 
then just people started noticing and then a lot of media coverage back in that day, you know, LA Times, that sort of thing. Here's this little Mexican kid painting and entering in all these shows, that sort of thing. And uh, and I still got, I still have some of these news clippings. Little Mexican kid. Is he the next Michelangelo? Of course, it was all hyperbole, but you know, it makes for clickbait. It wasn't clickbait back then, but it makes for, you know, grabbing your attention. So I'd like to kind of pivot a little bit to you mentioned, you know, you're in school and then you see Star Wars and you want to work on Star Wars. How did you get connected with them professionally? How did you first get in contact with Lucasfilm? I had a friend of mine who was just bugging me, he goes, you got to go see the Star Wars thing. And I was like, keen and on. I heard about it and I'd seen American Graffiti. So I knew about and I loved American Graffiti. So I, 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 I was aware of George Lucas, but people were just buzzing in art school. I went to Art Center College of Design. And so they're all buzzing. You got to see the Star Wars thing. So finally, I go with a buddy of mine. We go down to the Grauman's Chinese Theater. That's what it was called back then there in, uh, in Hollywood. And so we stand in line and uh, smoke a joint. You know, I don't, I don't do drugs. <laughs> I don't do drugs now. But then I mean, pretty much everybody smoked a little pot. And so went in and, and that first scene, you know, the play, I was like, we're like, what the hell is this? Right. And the sound system was pretty good and uh, just got just got hooked on it. And I think uh, what I liked about it was not only the visuals, but uh, it was a response to the anti-hero previously of, of our generation. You know, that whole easy, easy rider and uh, Bonnie and Clyde and that sort of thing in Chinatown. And so I think George Lucas brought back a clear, clearly defined evil person, Darth Vader, who was interest, visually interesting, right? But in many ways, you know, George Lucas, you know, read Hero of a Thousand Faces, you know, Joseph Campbell, who's a big devotee of that guy. And so the idea of just this uh, common boy who undergoes a trauma, and then he's asked to do something outside of his culture or his mindset. He has to literally change, right? So he becomes now a warrior. And of course, he has to have a teacher. And that teacher, and it, and it parallel with me having an art teacher, you know, somebody who's wise that you seek out, which I did. I, you know, I sought out a portrait painter who painted portraits of 20s movie stars, you know, Ray Moland and that sort of stuff. He was actually one of my art teachers and best friends with uh, Edgar G. Robinson, you know, partied with him. And oh, that, that whole story, I think, uh, was architect, or uh, it was like an archetype that everybody can relate to, right? Something happens, your life changes, and you go on another course. And in many ways, it was kind of like George Lucas, right? He's just kind of a teenage idiot, and he rams his car into a post, right? Right? And he changes. He ends up going, he was actually supposed to go to Art Center, and then mm -hmm. made a movie and ended up at uh, USC. And I went to USC for a semester too. I think that narrative, that storyline was very attractive, at least to me as uh, coming from kind of a you know poor background. Even when I was at Art Center, it's like, you know, everybody's got the nice cars and I got this beater, you know, beater cars and that sort of stuff. And uh, you get, I could go there now, it's just all Maseratis, Porsches and Beamers, a totally different school, you know. In some ways, you know, I kind of, had my own version of, you know, how how am I going to now get involved with this? And as luck would have it, you know, I graduated towards the top of my class, especially working fairly realistically. And so um, Lucasfilm, Industrial Light and Magic, they contacted the school there. 
and to ask for a couple students that recommend because they would have an opening because, you know, in a year or two, they were going to do uh, Jedi. And I got it and had absolutely no idea what I was doing because back then I wasn't doing landscapes at all. I was just doing portraits. And mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have gotten hired now with, with what I had then because it was a whole new field. Most of us didn't know anything what matte painting was. All done with paint. Now it's all digital. You know, and a lot of, uh, I even worked in, in the model department for a while. I worked on the Death Star during, you know, worked on the skin of the Death Star during, during Jedi. And a lot of those guys had worked at Bechtel. Worked at Bechtel at Parsons, you know, putting to, putting together uh, a models of the refineries. And so when you look at the Death Star, it's actually a refinery. It looks like, you know, it looks like Chevron at Richmond, you know, with the pipes and stuff. That's all these guys were doing. You know what I'm saying? And then they just had tons and tons of oh, those model kits. I don't, I don't, I don't do they have those anymore? You know, the glue. Yeah, these guys just had tons of that stuff. They would grab them and use them and modify them and repurpose these parts to make some of these ships. And, but of course, you know, Joe Johnson and a couple of the other guys, like Neil Rodas, you know, they were designing these things. And it was kind of, it was kind of fun. It was a small company back then. It was, I don't think it was more than 50 people. You know, it's a, I don't need, how, do you know how big it is? Now? Uh, huge, huge. Now I have no idea how many people, but enormous. Yeah. So, you know, I could, I, you know, I could walk in upstairs, see what Joe was doing and, you know, and, and, and Dave Carson and Neil Rodas, just look over the shoulder, start talking to them. You know, you know, I even, I was in, even in the art department for a while doing some sketches for, uh, I think the third Star Trek, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's how fluid it was. It's like, hey, we need some help over on the main stage. So whatever you're doing, can you we want you to hold? It was a very small company and everybody kind of doubled up for stuff. You know, I worked uh, when I was working on uh, yeah, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. They needed help, you know, that mine chase scene. So they rented office space down the street. And so for two weeks, myself and Jet and we were just doing all the trusses. It was a really fun experience, you know, and, and, and by the time I left, which was after Howard the Duck, Back to the Future. Yeah, I worked on so many movies, I kind of lose track. Uh, it was no longer any fun. I mean, the, the state of the, 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 the company, you, you talk to anybody back around that time, the morale was so low, especially after Howard the Duck. What a bomb. Back then, we could read the script. I, I don't know if you can even do that anymore. Well, I read the script because I was a supervisor on that for the math department. And I read the script and I go, this is horrible. Why are they making this movie? We almost went under because ILM had invested in the movie and uh, George had a contract with Paramount. So we ended up going that direction and it was a disaster. They, were, they did this whole premiere for MTV that they canceled because the reviews were so bad. They were going to do this huge, this was probably even before you're born. They were going to do this huge launch on MTV. They advertised it. And when it came out, it was so bad, they literally canceled everything. But that goes to show you how big MTV was back then. You know, I'm too old now, but but back then it was like on all the time. A lot of the guys like David Fincher, they were grabbing some of some of the uh, cameramen and doing, you know, videos for Huey Lewis or so they were all kind of moonlighting. Everybody was kind of just doing different stuff. It was a really exciting time. The math department specifically for me, 
is such a, a point of interest, only because the, the people that worked in there, right? You, you mentioned some of the, but like Pingrazio, obviously, and then I've talked to Craig Barron a bunch of times, uh, and then even before, I guess you joined Ellen Shaw, who had kind of this familial history of, of matte painting. With your process and your design, you know, you came, you mentioned from a portrait kind of perspective, but then I think the matte paintings have really stood this test of time where people are always just mind blown when, when all of it was actually painted. And I'd love to hear about your process a little bit and how you kind of adapted. So when I got hired by them, to me, to be a matte painter was just another challenge, right? Because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. You know, this, I, just, I, I literally just learned on the fly, but I had such a huge ego. I go, I can do this. And I've always been that way. You know, there's a certain... You know, my art teacher taught me something. He, you know, he, said, he said, faith in God, confidence in your abilities. I've always had confidence in my abilities, you know. I mean, even now, i got a radio show. I'm a co-host on, on, on AM. AM 950, you know, 104.5 AM, Voice of the Foothills, you know. Some guy asked me to be a co-host. I'm like, yeah, let's try it. So now, you know, the first time I did, I just said, you know, but the first time I was on, uh, I did the talk show, I counted 21 you knows. <laughs> and I went, okay, I got to eliminate saying, you know, and then between thoughts, I would go. And so I've eliminated the, uh, oh, that's good. As much, as much as possible. What I do is cause I, I just edit like everything that we're just doing. I just heavily edit myself, especially. So I sound perfect to the people listening, but it's because I spend three hours editing all the ums out. Well, that's just it. You know, we do a half hour show and we record in, in one shot. So I usually will write certain things down so I don't have to remember things. I can just like, just like a general topic, that sort of thing. So uh, all to say, when we first got started, we would be interviewed by these magazines, Cinefix and Craig Barron, Chris Evans, and Pingrazio were already pros at that whole map painting universe, right? And I had no clue. <laughs> you know, when they're talking rear projection, front projection, latent projection, film stock, you know, Vista Vision and blah, blah. Uh, and I, it, it, I just glossed over. I just wanted to paint, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first couple of interviews, well, at least when they asked me, were just disaster. I could talk more about it now in hindsight than back then because you, as you get older, become more mature, you have more of, of a grasp. And you're more honest with your emotions. You know, I mean, I don't think years ago I would have said that me and Pigrazio butt heads, but we really butt heads. I mean, we're both the same age, had known a couple people. I think he was in Burbank and that's, you know, I was in Pasadena. And so that we just, we didn't get along at all. And, and so Chris Evans was just a year older and he kind of kept, he kind of kept the peace. Again, I marvel that they didn't fire me, you know, because uh, uh, we just, we just, we just, uh, but heads, the fact that our group could keep it together was amazing because there was all these, these tensions. Well, I could say that for myself. I was an idiot, but we were all very competitive. We all wanted to be excellent, right? And people would come up and we were, we were either talking, you know, philosophy or talking about jazz, music. It was very lively. I consider it a very positive time in the growth of my thinking because I was always being challenged by Pingrazio. I was always being challenged by Chris. You know, they used to call me LA boy. Well that's what Pingrazio called me. He goes, hey LA boy, you know. Of course he's from LA too, you know, and that's the part that's weird. But I was really Southern Cal LA, you know what I'm saying? Even the, I was listening to music like the specials, the police, 
stuff like that. And those guys weren't into that, you know. So I I was just current on what was happening on MTV, current on just music. You know, I didn't have a TV at that time, so I, I wasn't really aware of world politics, but just about the music scene I was aware of. The the climate and the culture is so interesting to me in that early ILM, like you're kind of discussing, just because the actual output ends up being so extraordinary, and I really don't think has been matched. There's an artistry to computer-generated effects, but the practicality of everything is just so appealing to me. And tracing from after you leave the movie industry and, and then start working on your own image and brand and your designs and your creative process, what you maybe took from your time at Lucasfilm, but then also what you've grown into now is, as I can see behind you, like just beautiful things and your portfolio is incredible and, and everything that you've been able to do since. I'd be very interested to kind of track that journey. Have you talked to the guys about the experiences in the dailies? What dailies was like? Uh-uh. Not, no, we have not talked about that. That, to me, was the culture of ILM. Every morning, you'd walk in. They played everything that was filmed. Composites. We even had our own CBB. Could be better. Everybody in that small little projection room, it was really small, had a say. Anybody could say anything about the shot. It's like, okay, I think we're... I don't know. It's a little bit too green. Or what if, it, what if, what if the ship was a little bit bigger? coming around too fast and they would play something over and oh, it would be on a loop. I mean, I'm looking around and just pretty much all men. There's some women there, but pretty much all men. So the humor is just flying. So it's like, who could really, who could say something insightful and also humorous? When I was there, it was Richard Edlund and Dennis Murin. And then you find out later, these guys are locking heads. You find that out, all this stuff out later. But Richard Edlund was really cool. I really liked him because he, you know, he was the guy who created, you know, the pig nose little amplifier. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's we t When I talked to him, that was like the first thing I brought up. I was like, anyway. He always wore that kind of safari jacket. When he come up to the mat department, he'd go, hey, he'd go like this. Hey, what's going on? And so he had a very easy style. Dennis Murin was a little bit more detached, more cerebral. That was just his personality type. Ken Ralston. Ken was really funny. Guy could draw like nobody's business. So you had those three guys. You had this culture where we all could have input. And of course, when I first got there, I didn't say much of anything because I, I, I was just absorbing things. But after several years... You know, you start saying something, well, you know, I just think that's a little bit too green. Why is it naturally, as a painter, naturally it wouldn't look like that. But, so, you know, like everybody throws something in there. And of course, what's really nerve wracking in the math department is when one of our shots comes up because then everybody's beating it up. And then afterwards, we go back as a department. So it's Neil Krepola, Craig Barron, myself, Chris Evans, and Grazio. And we'll look at these shots you know, they're tearing into it. And i that's where I learned just not to take things personally. And so we would literally have an, just an hour just going over the shot. Like, uh, oh, this is wrong. Maybe add this, add that. And so we had this culture of we want to make these things better. These are singular efforts. In other words, I'm the one painting it, but everybody has had a critique. And I was already kind of used to that at Art Center because at Art Center that the school was designed on everybody, the teacher and other students critiquing artwork. So you end up having a thick skin when somebody says your work sucks or this is you know, not working. So I was already used to that. You know, I wasn't defensive. I just didn't know what I was doing and just got to learn to be better and better and better at it. So that I think that culture, that culture where we're all critiquing each other's work, trying to make it better. I have kind of carried over, over to my life. Now, there's a couple of guys retired. There's a guy here retired from Disney. And so he's an animation director. 
And so I usually have him kind of come in. I go, okay, come on, critique what I'm doing. And he'll critique what I'm doing. And then, okay, how about this frame, blah, blah, blah. And it's all good, you know? And sometimes he goes, I know you're not asking for it. He'll come by, but can I say something? And sometimes I'm like, no, don't, you know? <laughs> I want to live in my illusion that it's, that it's okay. I learned you need some people to speak into your craft, right? That part I, I carried with me. And I think Pingratsu had a great eye. Chris Evans had a great eye. So I was able to gather a lot from those two guys because they're, you know, they were masters. Yeah, and I, I was hired to do the pickup. Whatever those two guys didn't do, I got the crumbs, which was fine with me, you know? Some of those crumbs are pretty fun to paint. You know what I'm saying? Not only fun, but masterful. I think there are a few of them that just really beautiful stuff. And especially the integration seamlessly with live action is really fantastic. And I always think about the Ewok Village, how successful that is as a, as a shot. And then I also love personally the Millennium Falcon, because I don't think you see a full-size Millennium Falcon in Return of the Jedi. You just see the matte painting in a scene like that because they deleted some shots. Then you move into Star Trek, move into all these other really incredible things. It's a really masterful amount of work. At least for me, there's always a level of negotiation because, mm -hmm. you know, because Chris and Pingrazio, uh, you know, they pretty much got all the attention from, from uh, Craig and, and Neil, as it should be. So I was always having to kind of find time for them to shoot my pieces and even for them even to do a good job and for my stuff. The coolest guy that I met was Carlos Santana. There was a guy who was the conga player who was living in Fairfax. So somehow I met up with him and he was playing at a joint back in Corte Madera back in the day at a place called Uncle Charlie's. There were a lot of, and the tubes played there and a whole bunch of groups, you know, like uh, Huey Lewis in the news. So he goes, hey, why don't you come and see me play? And uh, Carlos is going to be there. He said he might play a song. So Carlos did show up. You know, they played one little one little set and it was fun. Michael comes out and he goes, hey, Carlos wants to meet you. I was like, me? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go backstage and there's Carlos and he's sitting on, you know, he's sitting on an amp. Very humble. Probably one of the most humblest people I've ever met. And he goes, hey, man, I just want to thank you for what you're doing for the planet, which I thought was an odd thing to say. And then he looks at me and he goes, hey, is there a way I can get a tour in there? Can you give me a tour? And I said, Sure, Carl. That's my only regret. I never followed up on that. That would have been cool because he lives there in, in, in uh, Tiburon. So I never followed up. Always respected his humility. Another actor that we that I worked with that I really respected was Lou Gossett Jr. We were working with him on, on Enemy Mine. We were using him for something. And so I literally talked to him with him for about an hour. And he was just like, I'm talking to you. Just there was there was no artifice. No Hollywood ego, like I'm this famous actor. And I've met a lot of the actors. A lot of them I didn't particularly care for. You know, they had, they had egos. It was generally really cool. All to say, going going back, when you go to these reunions, it's like you fall back and like, this guy's the boss. And this guy's, and it's like, no, nah, that, that was back in the 80s. You're just, you're just a knucklehead now. And, and this is fun. Still get people, you know, kind of interested in what, what it was like. And so I understand the nostalgia uh, because it's a generational thing. You know, what are, what are you, like a 32? 30, yeah. 30, okay. Yeah, yeah. See, so it's a, gener it's a generation. So you, you're interested in that. You're fascinated because you weren't alive. And it was a totally different mindset. In fact, I don't know if anybody told you this, but ILM was the top dog back in 80, 81. So when, uh, we had our Christmas party at the Sheraton, which was in Market Street, it was opulent. And, and it was uh, 
I even got, even got photographs from it. It was uh, Spielberg's uh, birthday. And so they celebrated it. And we had Huey Lewis in the news as our party band. Wow. Has anybody told you that? No, that's great. So I'm dancing with with this with my date. And there's, there's Huey. And the band, <laughs> I'm just going, is this the coolest or what? You know? <laughs> so, you know, everybody gets to experience that. But that that's when ILM was at its height. They just spent all that. I had to have spent tons of money for this for this event. And a lot of us were actually pretty smart because we all wanted to drink. So we all had extra money. So we all would charter a limousine. So you'd see all these limousines. It wasn't like we were famous. It's just we we, we all knew we were going to get drunk and we didn't want to drive. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm serious. It would be like three or four of us that would rent a limousine. Back then, the limousine for the night was like 300 bucks or 350 bucks. It wasn't that much money. So, you know, we each put in a hundred bucks and just felt safe coming home after, after, after party. It's like Uber. You took an Uber. Yeah. Yeah. But this <laughs> just a long Uber. A long just Uber. A, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so any, anyway, I don't know how I got on that. This show has been very interesting for me. I had like 150 conversations like this. And really for me now, it's not even Star Wars. Again, like the things that we were talking about, I really do just find more inspiration from creative people. That's kind of really the driving force now for me is like getting this kind of secondhand inspiration from from people that are as talented as you. And so how can people find you? What? How can people see the, the work? Because it is beautiful and, and wonderful. Well, you know, they, usually I'm on Facebook or Instagram and uh, I'm a big part of this community. They have some of my paintings up on walls. A lot of businesses have collected my art. I've done, I've painted a lot of people's children, you know, and loved ones. So I'm pretty connected here. And, and that's one thing I think for well-being, And even Plato talked about, you know, the good life. What's the good life? The good life is you have a set of friends and family that support you, that love you, that you can connect with. That's part of the problem, you know, with having an online presence because you don't smell them, see them, and, you know, know what their true height is. You know, it's all, it's it's an artifice, right? You're creating a perception. That perception you can manipulate, just like when you say you edit things. So you're you're creating a perception. You uh, they say, and I and I talk about this on my radio show. You know, you create a you're molding a perception to create a reality, and you could do that with people. People are very malleable, and so same thing with movie making. You're creating a perception. So when you walk into this dark theater, you believe this reality. You know, you know what I'm saying. You make it so that people will dispense with their with that. Well, that's not real. Well, you know, you know what I'm saying? There's no fire in space when you see the, the exhaust chargers, that sort of thing. I mean, where are some of those light sources coming from? You know, these things are all made up to create this perception that these things are real. So uh, once you once you buy into that, then you, you can really start having fun. They, a lot of people just kind of, kind of come in and I'm represented in Santa Fe, represented in Carmel in Reno and here in Auburn. Auburn, this is this is a gold country. So there's there's mines everywhere. And I'll meet people who've their family goes back to the gold rush. They didn't make it and so they sold chickens or they planted fruit trees and orchards and started markets or maybe they were good at making clothes and that sort of thing. So you you have people who've made a life here but their relatives initially came here for, for riches, right? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Literally about several miles down the road is Sutter's Mill in Coloma. Mm-hmm. That's where they discovered gold. We have a lot of people here, gold pan. You can still, I had a guy come into the gallery. He goes, look at this. You know, he, he had this gold nugget 
and he came back later, five grand. I forgot what it was. Uh, what it was like it was at eighteen hundred dollars an ounce. What gold was? Somebody gave him five thousand for it, and he just found it. It just found it. So you see a lot of these people. They're still go farther up where there's no police force. So guys will be dredging or they'll have their own claims. And it's like still the Wild West. People take up there taking their guns to protect themselves against people trying to steal their claim. Steal gold. Oh, yeah. It's a whole interesting lifestyle. I'm never in Auburn. I, I know where to come visit. And I appreciate your time, Mr. Ordaz. Uh, thank you for the stories and, and for everything. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Mr. Ordaz for his time, stories, and talent. I really had such a blast getting to delve deeper into his stories and the mat department. To check out his beautiful current work, head to ordazart.com. And that's all for this week. Coming up soon are my already recorded interviews with Lucy Autry Wilson, Toby Longworth, Brian Muir, and many more. If right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means a lot and really helps the show out. So until next week, stay tuned. Leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.